So, Dale, I don't know how much you know about therapy, but it usually starts by you telling me a little something about yourself. I thought there'd be couches and Kleenex and shit. Look at me, son. It's not your fault. Do you want to talk about some of those feelings? I love you. Obviously, you don't know me. So how is this supposed to work? You sit, I sit, we talk. Hi, I'm Dr. Sam. And I'm Dr. Fran. Welcome to Freudian Scripts, the podcast where we put your favorite TV shows and movies on the hypothetical couch and take a deeper dive into the way psychology is portrayed. We analyze the way therapy looks in entertainment, discuss the way psychological diagnoses are portrayed, and break down other psychological themes seen on our screens. As a reminder, Freudian Scripts is for informational and entertainment purposes only. Please consult your mental health professional with any questions and seek care if needed. The content and clips in today's episode will contain explicit language and mature and adult themes. There will be references to suicide in today's episode, which may be a difficult topic for some listeners. If you or someone you know is struggling with or at risk for suicidal thoughts and ideation, you can get help by calling the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. This telephone number is available 24 hours and does have multiple languages, including Spanish and English. You can reach this by calling one 800 273 8255. Hey everyone, we hope you are excited for today's session. We will be covering new themes and a new diagnosis in today's episode while we talk through the lens of Netflix's new movie, Woman in the Window. I have an anxiety disorder. I'm agoraphobic. I can't go outside. 911. My neighbor Jane, she's been stabbed. NYPD. Why is he here? Mr. Russell believes that you made a mistake. You have never met my wife. We spent the evening together. I'm Jane Russell. She's not Jane. I know what I saw. Your doctor said that your meds can cause hallucinations. 911. I think somebody is in my house. Don't go looking into other people's houses. You won't like what you see. The Woman in the Window is a 2021 American psychological thriller based on the 2018 novel of the same name by author A.J. Finn. The movie follows psychologist Dr. Anna Fox, who is played by Amy Adams. Dr. Fox is diagnosed with agoraphobia and, while at home, begins to spy on her new neighbors, a family played by Gary Oldman, Fred Hessinger, and Julianne Moore. While spying on the family, she witnesses a crime in their apartment. What will happen? (laughs) So Dr. Sam and I had both read the book prior to watching this new movie that came out. Um, I have actually read it in the last week or two weeks or so. As soon as we decided we were doing this movie, I quickly downloaded the book and read it as fast as I could because I really (laughs) am one of those people that likes to read the book before I see the movie if I can because most of the time it's going to be better than the movie. Same. I always have to read the book first because I know if I watch the movie, it's just going to spoil the book and I'd rather spoil the movie. <laughs> yeah. I think we'll, we'll get to it, but I think it did spoil the movie a bit for both of us. But <laughs> Yes. <laughs> um, so we do have Amy Adams coming back as our first like recurring star. So that's really exciting. And not a you know main character in this movie or in the show that she was previously on, but we do have another uh, coming back actor, Jennifer Jason Lee, who plays the like 
quote, real Jane Russell in this movie, <laughs> um, and Sam's mom in Atypical. So we've seen her two times pretty recently. And then Amy Adams, for those of you who haven't followed all of our sessions so far, was on our Sharp Objects episode. Um, and she kind of plays like a similarly, you know, kind of like, person who's struggling with a lot of mental health concerns, maybe some trauma, coping in maybe mm -hmm. not the most effective, helpful ways, a lot of substance use. So we true. see some similarities in the characters um, this time around. Very true. And it's also exciting in a different way is this is the first movie, I believe, that we're putting on the couch in which the main character or the protagonist is a psychologist. Um, so that'll be interesting for Dr. Fran and I as well. <laughs> Yeah, I think that part is really exciting. And, you know, a little bit of a spoiler, like that was one piece I found a little disappointing is that we do have this main character <laughs> who is a psychologist. And we don't really there's not much done with that in the movie. Um, you know, you'll hear Dr. Sam and I probably mentioned the book a lot. If you have, have not read the book, I highly, highly recommend it. Um, they do, I think, pay more attention to detail in terms of playing up the fact that she's a psychologist. But we do get a little bit of some information about her as a psychologist um, early on in the movie. While she's talking to her husband, we learn that Anna is a psychologist, um, but that she's not very happy with her own psychiatrist. I think you're reading into it. I've been a shrink for 15 years. I know a threat when I hear one. He's on your side, slugger. He's the reason you're still here. It's not really therapy if there's a knife at your back. He comes every week, rain or shine. He's been there all the way through. No, he's, he's getting off on controlling me. Really? Yes. Did you read about Elevan? Take a look at the side effects. I know you're not supposed to drink on it. <laughs> they always say that. That might be something that we might see in real life that I think as mental health providers, we might be picky in our own, you know, <laughs> seeking out mental health treatment or psychiatry or those different things. Um, we might be more likely to pick out like, oh, I didn't like what this person did because maybe it's not what I would do. Um, but yeah, Anna is not very happy with her psychiatrist. Yeah, very true on all accounts, I think, Dr. Fran. And I wanted to point out, I think, interestingly, with this movie, while we have, you know, Anna, who is a psychologist and she is you know, engaged in treatment with a psychiatrist, for this session, we're really not going to be talking much about the portrayal of her treatment. We will talk about, you know, what we think could have gone uh, better or been more beneficial in terms of treatment, of course, like we always do. Um, but, you know, the focus isn't really on that because we don't see a lot of that in the movie, really. The, the main focus is related to some of the mental health concerns or some of the difficulties that we see Dr. Fox experiencing. So we will dive into more of those. And often, like with a lot of the movies and shows that we put on the couch, there are various characters and various mental health themes that are occurring, and we can't always get to all of them. And I think that this is a good example of that. So really for today, we're going to be mostly focusing on Anna and kind of going through the movie and her experiences through her lens. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a really good point. We could spend five hours, which is like double the length of the movie, talking about all the different characters <laughs> and breaking them down. But we'll really focus on Dr. Fox. Um, and in terms of the therapy, there's not much, like Dr. Sam said. We don't get a lot of clips or information on the treatment that she's getting. We do know that she's seeing a psychiatrist maybe once a week. Um, and she's in pretty regular communication with her psychiatrist who seems to primarily be working with her on medication management. Um, so let's take a listen to her first scene. It's actually very early in the film, like within the first five minutes, we're introduced to her and her psychiatrist. So what's the latest on the street? What happened with the barking dog? I thought we were going to talk about medications. We'll get there. Would you like to take a seat? Did it get squared away? The dog? Um, I guess they started bringing him inside. Did you end up calling 311? <laughs> oh, David talked me out of it. It's 
more of a bother for him anyway. It's louder downstairs. So I must have talked to somebody. Peaceful resolution. This is the second session that you've done this. Ask about the neighborhood? Does that make you uncomfortable? I just don't know what you're going for. How's the prayer group? They're getting by. Do you think they know you're watching? Is this really what you want to talk about? What about 101? Looks like they already moved in. What'd they pay? Five, five. They were asking for six. Who are they? They're Russells. Alistair and Jane. The broker says they're from Boston. Where's the money from? She says he's a banker. But there's practically nothing about them online. I'm sure you'll figure it out. What the fuck, Carl? Curiosity is evidence of a decreased depression pattern. People who snoop on their neighbors don't kill themselves? <laughs> Let's try this. People who attempt suicide lose the right to joke about it. I have a review with Dr. Kenner this week. Seeing as I've been unable to get you out the front door for the last 10 months, she's going to wonder about the source of my optimism. Let's talk about the yellow van. Now that you've curtailed the drinking, how are you feeling about the side effects? So in this clip, we really hear Anna just seemingly very frustrated with her psychiatrist. Um, her psychiatrist is asking her a lot of different questions, kind of based on her experience, kind of watching the neighbors and the neighborhood and the ongoings in the area. And she just is kind of like, what is the point, right? And so I think right off the bat, Dr. Fran and I chatted about this. We're not very impressed necessarily by the rapport, the relationship that Anna and the psychiatrist seem to have. <laughs> yeah, we learned they've been seeing each other for 10 months and that not only has she not made the type of progress that she or the psychiatrist want, but also that in 10 months, they don't seem to have developed a very strong relationship. She immediately leaves the session and complains to her husband mm -hmm. about how, you know, he's trying to control her and, you know, things aren't going well. She's, we learned very quickly that she's also not being upfront with him or, you know, being very honest with him, which again, I think speaks not just to her not feeling like she can, but that he hasn't created that space where she feels like she can be vulnerable and express to him like, hey, I'm not taking the medications in the way that I'm supposed to. And I'm also using substances. Can you help me fix this as opposed to basically hiding it from him? And he hasn't created that space. It doesn't seem like for her to feel comfortable sharing that with him, which I think is a problem. I think that's a great point. And we also get the sense, you know, she calls her husband and is expressing how, you know, unsatisfied she is with the treatment and the medications, but she doesn't share that with him at all, that's right? True. She doesn't like the medications. She seems like they're having side effects, that they're not helpful maybe. Um, and, and yet she hasn't shared that so that her treatment or her, like her plan could be adjusted accordingly. Yeah, absolutely. All good points. So a lot of things that the psychiatrist up front doesn't seem to be doing to create that environment where Anna or Dr. Fox feels like she can be honest about everything that's going on and that she's unhappy with the treatment that she's getting. Yeah, definitely. And I think in this early on in this clip, this is where we kind of find out that she's a psychologist as well, because she mentions to her husband, like, well, I know what he's doing. You know, I'm a quote unquote shrink is the word that she uses in the movie. I've been a shrink for 15 years. Um, and she talks about being unhappy and knowing that the psychiatrist is trying to control her. We also hear her explain her profession in a sense and describe being a psychologist when she meets her new young neighbor as well. Let's give a quick listen to that. Uh, I'm a psychologist. I work with kids. Really? Really. That's interesting. Why is that interesting? I mean, it's more interesting than like 
working at Taco Bell, <laughs> why would kids need a psychologist? You really don't know why a kid would need a psychologist? No, I mean, I'm, I'm sure they do, but I, I mean, like, why? Like, why do the kids who see you need a psychologist? All sorts of reasons. Like school shootings or torturing someone? No, it doesn't have to be that dramatic. Some of them are depressed. Some suffer from anxiety. Some of them are just having a hard time adjusting to a new place. I actually liked this clip and I remember watching it and being like, oh, okay, here's a scene where they did an okay job of trying to break down some myths about psychiatry and particularly child psychology because Dr. Sam and I have both worked a lot with like children and adolescents. And I think the question Ethan asked in this scene of like, why do kids need therapy um, might be a question that a lot of people have. And I think she does a nice job of addressing it in terms of like people come for a lot of different reasons. Maybe they're having trouble adjusting or maybe there's depression or anxiety that it doesn't have to be um, adults only that are, you know, getting benefits from mental health services. So I did kind of like this scene, I will admit. I think that's an interesting perspective. And I agree. I will have a little bit of a uh, kind of twist on that scene because when I first watched it, I also liked that scene, but I remember thinking that Anna, she was, um, she was portrayed as very irritable at first. Yeah. Like when he was asking questions, very she didn't really want to answer. Yeah. Very cold, very distant. She didn't really want to answer him. And he is an adolescent. So someone that she, you might think, would be pretty quick at being able to like adapt, uh, establish rapport or kind of have a conversation with. And now looking back, I can kind of better understand that that might be her anxiety, right? This is the first time like a stranger is coming into her space. And we'll get a little bit more into this, but her safe space, right? He's coming in. She doesn't know him. She's kind of on guard. And it does take her a while to let that guard down. But I did like how she eventually ended up sharing more about being a psychologist and I thought it was interesting that as a young person and I mean there are levels to this once we kind of figure out more about Ethan the neighbor but you know how he was kind of a little bit naive as to like oh why might children like need help from someone like you so I thought that that it was cool in that way <laughs> yeah absolutely no I definitely picked up on that as well of like here's this poor new neighbor kid and and she seems to be <laughs> kind of rude to him and like she she's trying to put off that vibe of like I don't want to talk to you um he does mm-hmm. not pick up on those cues or he does and he doesn't care and he just keeps asking questions anyway but they somehow end up developing a close relationship because she ends up being very protective over him and wants to make sure he's safe and there's a lot of family drama that we'll get to. Exactly. And I think part of that in that first scene, like what goes beyond what we listen to, is that Ethan starts to kind of share like how he's moved here and it seems like it was related to some big incident that may have occurred and he doesn't know anyone and he feels lonely and he even becomes tearful. And I think that that allows Anna to kind of like reach out and like, you know, probably the psychologist and the person in her that is like used to working with and supporting youth kind of like softens her a bit to kind of help him since he's going through a hard time. Well, at least that's what Ethan would want us to think in that scene. So (laughs) giving some little inklings of some hints there, Dr. Sam. (laughs) Yes, definitely. We always, you know, we don't really warn about spoiler alerts because you know, we're going to spoil the movie and TV shows as we dive into it. But this is definitely one where there are twists. So if you have not watched the movie or read the book and don't want it spoiled, press pause, Go watch and then come back and listen. <laughs> yeah, lots of spoilers in this in today's episode. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so Dr. Sam already alluded to this, but Anna does have some anxiety. And, you know, we've already from the beginning learned that she has these diagnoses. So we learned that she's receiving treatment for agoraphobia and panic attacks. Uh, so let's listen mm-hmm. to Anna describe what this looks like for her. Do you faint a lot? I didn't faint. I mean, it's like fainting. I can't go outside. Um, you didn't go outside. No, I get panic attacks. It doesn't. Here, have some of this brandy, please. Uh, I'm a agoraphobic. I can't go outside. 
so I I have mixed feelings about this scene, and I think that these things will come up again and again. But really, what we're hearing in this scene is Anna has just attempted to scare off some trick-or-treaters who are throwing eggs at her house. And, and she is quote-unquote, like, rescued by the new neighbor, Jane, who she believes is Jane Russell, who comes to her door um, and brings her back inside after she's, like, attempted to open her door. And she's explaining to Jane, you know, that she gets panic attacks and that she can't go outside. So what I like about this scene really is that, you know, she is opening up and sharing with a a new person, right, just kind of the difficulties that she has and experiences. Um, And then she also talks about, like, how she is trying to get treatment for it. Do you want to go outside? You know, I have a shrink of my own (laughs) okay Okay. i got it i got it all right sorry that sounds very wise yeah Yeah. we've been trying to get me to go outside using an umbrella Uh uh-huh i haven't been able to do it yet oh you will so you know we don't often have characters in movies or tv shows just kind of come out and say like these are my diagnoses. This is kind of what's uh, difficult for me. And this is what I'm trying to do to fix it. So I did like that piece of it. Yeah, I would agree. I think that's a nice way of looking and trying to pull something positive. (laughs) I think something Dr. Sam and I both noticed in this scene is that it very much simplifies and describes agoraphobia Mm -hmm. in a way that I think popular media and maybe like popular culture understand agoraphobia on, but it doesn't accurately capture like what agoraphobia actually is. I agree. It's like, you know, with Anna saying, you know, I am agoraphobic. I can't go outside. She's just equating with, you know, agoraphobia as something that keeps her from going outside. And oftentimes that is mainly how agoraphobia is portrayed in the media. So that kind of brings us to the big question, right? So then what really is agoraphobia? Yeah, absolutely. And so we'll talk a little bit about what agoraphobia is, and then we'll see how that applies to how it's portrayed in this movie in particular. But agoraphobia is classified as one of the anxiety disorders. And again, we'll talk about agoraphobia from the perspective of our Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, 5th edition, as we typically do, our DSM-5. It has been described as a fear of fear or the fear of being in situations where a person is not going to be able to escape or might feel embarrassed. So oftentimes, but not always, there might be a sense of or a component of panic where part of it might be an individual is fearful of being out in a specific space where they might have panic symptoms. They might even have a panic attack, which we'll get to. And that leads to a fear of not being able to escape that situation. Yes, exactly. And we will kind of go into this in more detail. And to help us better understand agoraphobia, we are going to do a diagnosis. Bingo. And this diagnosis bingo will help us to better explain the diagnostic criteria and really dive into the portrayal of Anna's character and the symptoms that she is experiencing or that they're showing us and whether that really maps on to what we might expect for someone who would get this diagnosis. Yeah, absolutely. And so the first main symptom of agoraphobia is probably what most people expect or kind of think. This is what we see um, portrayed with Anna, and this is what we see often portrayed with agoraphobia. It's defined as having fear or anxiety about two or more of the following situations. Um, and so again, you can have two of these or more. Um, so some of them are using public transportation. So that might be like bikes, buses, trains, not bikes, sorry, Buses, cars, trains, <laughs> maybe bikes. I don't know. Um, we don't nec- public bikes. Yeah. <laughs> we don't necessarily see that one with Anna. We just don't like see her go out in the world enough to know if there's specific fears about these other 
uh, types of situations. Um, there's also being in more open spaces. So this one I've seen a lot talked about, like with veterans, oftentimes, if they have like agoraphobic symptoms that, you know, being in these open spaces where maybe it's harder to, you know, find an area to escape or like a route or something like that to get out of the situation. Um, on the other side, we also have being in enclosed spaces. So this could be in like shops or theaters or like, you know, spaces that are like shopping malls. Um, we also have standing in line or being in a crowd. So that's another kind of mm -hmm. specific one. And you can kind of see that like while these things are similar, they're also kind of distinct, mm -hmm. right? Like someone who someone might have specific, you know, fears about like being in a crowd and also being in enclosed spaces while not having the yes. public transportation concerns or things like that. And then the final one, the the final possibility here is being outside of the home alone. And so this is really the one that we see Anna experiencing difficulty with. This is what we heard Anna describe when she said that she's afraid to leave her home. However, as Dr. Fran mentioned at the beginning, for this kind of main symptom here, we are looking for at least two of these symptoms. So we're not sure if she necessarily meets for that criteria, but let's continue and see where else we're kind of seeing it consistent with this presentation. Yeah, so right off the bat, we at least don't have enough information as what we see in the movie to be able to say like, yes, this criteria is definitely met. And like, it's possible that if we saw her leave the house, yeah. that like maybe she does also have a fear of being in open spaces or enclosed places. Mm -hmm. But from what we see in the movie, we really only see her hitting one of these. So it gets a little bit tricky, but we'll continue anyway. Exactly. We may not have all the information, <laughs> as we usually don't when it comes to these uh, situations on movies. <laughs> the second symptom would be that the individual fears or avoids these situations. And they're really avoiding these situations oftentimes because they have thoughts that escaping them might be difficult or that they might not have help if they are looking to escape or if they do develop panic-like symptoms or other symptoms that they're embarrassed about or might be incapacitating. Um, so this is often what we see in anxiety disorders. They can be really defined by having avoidance of the situations that bring on that fear and anxiety. And I think this is one of the main things that we really see with Anna is this avoidance, right? So she avoids leaving the house. That's partly why we don't really know for her criteria one if there are other possibilities there because we only see her in the home. She really has difficulty leaving the house. She's very afraid of it. When she tries to leave the house, she does have this um, onset of panic-like symptoms, which we'll discuss in greater t detail shortly. And we see that she really avoids. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think the tricky part here is because we don't have her inner dialogue of, you know, why she's fearful of leaving the house. It gets a little tricky of like, we don't actually know for sure is Anna having these part these thoughts of I know I'm not going to be able to escape I'm not going to be able to get help that would give us a better mm -hmm. indication that like this seems to fit for her but I think we can surmise based on the fact that every time mm -hmm. she leaves she has like a fainting spell brought on by a panic attack that that might be part of what's going on for her so I would agree I think we can give we can give her this one yeah, very true. I think you're right. We don't know a lot about the thoughts, but we see the behavior of avoidance. Um, but a better understanding of that would be helpful. Yeah. The next two are seem a little redundant, kind of based on what we've just talked about. Um, so the next two symptoms are one, that the situations almost always provoke fear or anxiety. Um, so absolutely every time she yes. wants to leave the house, the few times we see that her try in the movie, it provokes fear or anxiety for her. Mm -hmm. And then the next one is that these situations are actively avoided 
require the presence of a companion or are endured with intense fear or anxiety. Um, so again, I think she definitely seems to hit for this one. Dr. Sam already mentioned she just doesn't leave the house because she wants to avoid these mm-hmm. situations. We also learn a little bit more about like how she manages this. So everything gets delivered yes. to her. She specifically like has a tenant in her basement apartment so that he can do things around the house outside or like bring the trash mm-hmm. in or bring the mail. Um, her psychiatrist mm-hmm. comes to her. So she's kind of developed this way over the last 10 months of accommodating so that she doesn't have to uh, like leave the house or face these situations. Yes. And then kind of wrapping up some of the other details that are related to this diagnosis are that the fear or anxiety is out of proportion to the actual danger posed by the agoraphobic situations um, and kind of to just the overall sociocultural context. So we'll talk a little bit more about some experiences that Anna has had and things that may be related. We'll kind of talk about where she really fits in in terms of these diagnoses. However, it could be argued that just stepping outside of her house and that intense anxiety that is brought on by that is out of proportion for what she would experience in the day-to-day basis. So, you know, it does seem like that that one is a criteria she's also demonstrating. And then that the fear and anxiety or avoidance is persistent and lasting for at least six months. So I think Dr. Fran mentioned in the beginning that she chats with her psychiatrist and they mentioned that she has not left the house for at least 10 months. So we know that at minimum, this has been going on for 10 months. So definitely meeting criteria there as well. Yep, absolutely. Another criteria, and this is one that is almost for every single diagnosis in the DSM, is that whatever's going on, the fear, anxiety, or avoidance in this case is causing clinically significant distress or impairment in other areas. Mm -hmm. Um, I would say she meets for this as well. She definitely seems to be distressed by the fact that she can't leave the house, that she's had to kind of like change her whole lifestyle to be able to accommodate this. And it seems Mm -hmm. to have impacted other areas of her life. Like we don't see her working anymore. It sounds like she used to be a pretty successful child psychologist. We don't see her see clients. It's not like she's adapted and now she can do it from home, at least not what we see in the movie. Exactly. And she really doesn't seem to have a social life, right? She's like, you know, um, like you mentioned, she's adapted other ways, but is really reliant on others and supports to kind of get the things that she needs outside of the home. So not able to really function in the ways that she might uh, wish that she could. So we do see that impairment here. There's also so often associated features or things that we might think of that aren't technically like diagnostic criteria, but kind of help us get a little bit more information about the diagnosis. So for agoraphobia in particular, um, it we do see that it can happen that individuals become completely homebound, that they're kind of like Anna in that they can't leave their house. Um, or that they're dependent on others. Oftentimes this can lead or have, you know, concurrently also depressive symptoms, alcohol abuse, or like other medication use, um, and, you know, other self-medication strategies. So we definitely see that in Anna, at least that, you know, her psychiatrist makes comments about her having depressive symptoms. He alludes that she may have had some suicidal ideation in the past, and we definitely Mm -hmm. see the substance use going on. Yes. It is also interesting to note that females are twice as likely as males to experience agoraphobia. So again, in this portrayal with Anna being a female, um, that does seem to be in line with what we know about this disorder. Um, And then 
also in line, and we'll talk about this in greater details, we kind of go through negative events um, in childhood or just other stressful events can be associated with the onset of agoraphobia. And as we later learn, there is an instance of trauma and a very um, stressful event that occurs that seems to have occurred right before she developed these agoraphobic-like symptoms. We do also generally see that people with agoraphobia typically have had other anxiety disorders that have predated the agoraphobia. So we again, we don't know what happened to Anna pre what we see in the movie, um, but that's a typical course. And then typically, if we're thinking about agoraphobia in particular, individuals might develop those uh, depressive symptoms or those substance use symptoms secondary. So because of everything that they're dealing with, Because of the agoraphobia, those other things are more likely to develop after the onset of that disorder. Yes, and we see that with Anna. So she has started to drink alcohol as what it appears a means to help cope with just like the distress that she's experiencing from being in her home or and feeling like she's unable to leave the home, potentially to depressive symptoms as well. Another thing that we see with Anna, and we've we've alluded to, we've chatted about, and we heard Anna describe in her own words, is that she does have panic-like symptoms that occur, in particular when she is going to leave the house, that brings on panic attacks for her. So I think it's interesting to note that agoraphobia can be diagnosed with or without the presence of panic disorder, which is, you know, related to those panic attacks. So as you heard, it's not a diagnostic criteria to have agoraphobia. Um, However, sometimes people who do have agoraphobia also have panic attacks or panic-like symptoms. Um, And so a person can potentially meet criteria for both panic disorder and agoraphobia. And if that's the case, they can get both of those diagnoses. So when we look at this more closely with Anna, like what that means for her, um, we do see that she is experiencing panic attacks, um, which we know can occur in agoraphobia. So maybe let's chat a little bit more about what panic attacks are, what panic disorder is, and how that might fit in with what's going on with Anna. Yeah, I think this is a really important distinction because I think most people have heard or like kind of generally know what a panic attack is, but Mm -hmm. panic disorder is something very distinct and Uh, I think important to kind of talk about like what that means just because someone has panic attacks doesn't automatically mean that they have panic disorder. Actually panic attacks can go with a lot of different uh, disorders that we'll talk about. Like it can go with PTSD. Mm -hmm. It can go with agoraphobia and the presence of those alone does not warrant an an additional diagnosis. So I think that's an important distinction to make there. Yes. Very important. And I think that's the thing that we can sometimes see, or we often see in real life. And what we see with Anna is that there can be these symptoms that are occurring that might fit kind of in different categories or different diagnoses and kind of having a better understanding of what the individual is experiencing and their history and, you know, kind of all of the behaviors and feelings and thoughts associated can really help you to better understand what's going on with them. And so with Anna, we're going to try to do that. And of course, with the limited information that we have from the movie, but while also just kind of explaining these differences as well. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And so with Anna, we do see her have a panic attack when the trick-or-treaters are, like Dr. Sam mentioned it before, mm-hmm. throwing eggs at her window that she gets so angry that she wants to go outside and open the door. We also see her have a panic attack when she thinks that Jane, or she sees Jane being murdered, and she tries to leave the house to go save her and also collapses. And we don't, again, see all the details, and I'm probably going to conflate some of what I read in the book with what was in the movie, but we have a few (laughs) examples of her having these panic symptoms in response to going outside. Yes, and so those are the examples of Anna having panic attacks, and she describes them as panic attacks. And so a panic attack is defined as an abrupt surge of intense fear or intense discomfort that reaches a peak within minutes, and during this time, 
four or more of the following symptoms are occurring. So we're going to go through these symptoms, and if someone has four or more of these in this intense surge period, that is what we would classify a panic attack as. So we've got number one is um, pounding heart or accelerated heart rate. We don't know Mm -hmm. that this happens for Anna. I would warrant, I would guess that she probably is experiencing this. Um, We also have... It seems like it. (laughs) I think that's one of the most common, uh, you know, things Mm -hmm. that come up with a panic attack. Sweating is pretty common. Mm -hmm. We also have trembling or shaking. Um, I believe she experiences this that we see in the movie. Yes. So the trembling or shaking, and along with that sensations of shortness of breath um, or having difficulty, like a a feeling of difficulty breathing. So I think with those two, in the scene that Dr. Fran just alluded to where she's trying to leave the house to help Jane, they show as she kind of runs through the door and she's at the door like getting ready to open it. And it kind of shows as her breathing is becoming shallow, we kind of see that her hand is shaking as she goes to open the door. Um, I think that we can hypothesize that she might be experiencing these. Again, we don't know for sure, but just from the visual cues of the movie, it does appear that at least those two are something she's experiencing. 911 operator, what's your emergency? Slow down, ma'am. What's your name and where are you? We've also got similarly or relatedly feelings of choking can come up, um, having chest pain or discomfort. So actually oftentimes people might present to the emergency room thinking that they're having a heart attack when they're having a panic attack because a lot of these symptoms might feel like you've got that chest pain, you're having trouble breathing. Um, Mm -hmm. So that's a very common occurrence. Some people also experience nausea or abdominal distress. Another thing that one I think we do see with Anna is feeling dizzy, unsteady, lightheaded, or even fainting. Yes, and she often, I think she even mentions to when she, when she first meet who she believes is Jane, Jane asks like, oh, do you faint a lot? And she's like, oh, they're panic attacks, but they're like fainting. And we see that she appears to faint or lose consciousness like on at least two occasions um, when she's experiencing a panic attack. So it seems like one that she uh, is experiencing there. We can also see uh, chills or heat sensations, so kind of changes in feeling cold or hot. People describe experiences of numbness or tingling sensations in their limbs. We also can see derealization. We've talked about this a little bit in our Fight Club episode, I believe. Um, yes. So feelings of unreality or depersonalization, so feeling detached from oneself. Um, we can also, uh, oftentimes people describe a fear of losing control or a fear of, or feeling like they're going crazy, um, and a fear of dying in that moment. I mean, again, you can imagine like if all of these things or even a few of these things are occurring at one time that it feels like the body's in overdrive, the chest is in pain, mm-hmm. you're feeling lightheaded, that it feels like something is really wrong and I might die. Exactly. And, you know, if you are someone who has never experienced a panic attack before, or if you're someone who has experienced a panic attack, um, you know, you can kind of relate to this and just thinking if you all of a sudden had this like sudden feeling of something being physically wrong, right? Like maybe you're feeling numb, you're having trouble breathing, something feels wrong with your heart, you're about to faint. And then also you're having these thoughts that are very fearful about dying or going crazy and just like an imminent threat type feeling. You know, it is a very scary experience and that is why it can often also be associated with trying to avoid experiencing these feelings because they feel so uncontrollable. They feel so, um, you know, unpleasant. They cause a lot of discomfort. Uh, Not a pleasant thing to experience at all. Yeah, of course. I think it makes sense. Like if you're imagining having these episodes where you experience these like really uncomfortable, distressing events, you don't want to experience again. So it's natural that we may want to avoid situations that might bring that up, or we might avoid situations where that might come up. And unfortunately, what we know from the literature and, you know, from the treatment is that that's actually the opposite of what we want to do, because that might perpetuate the likelihood that these will happen again. Exactly. And, you know, 
Panic attacks, as we just described and went through, can occur for various people and at various intervals. Someone might never experience a panic attack. Someone might have one panic attack. One panic attack. Other people might have experiences with them here and there. It can really vary. And so when we're looking for something more related to panic disorder, as we talked about, that's where we start to see these other pieces that come into play. And one of the biggest ones is, you know, individuals who suffer from such intense anxiety about having a panic attack, you know, they start to develop fear of panic attacks themselves and they start to avoid situations in which they think they're going to have a panic attack. That's where we start to see where it um, trends towards the development of panic disorder. And I think oftentimes with panic disorder, when it gets to that point is it's avoiding situations that might bring up the panic attack. It's also potentially avoiding yep. situations that that might occur because it might be embarrassing or they might not be able to get mm-hmm. out of that situation or they might not be yep. able to get help. Um, so it kind of turns into this like, you know, kind of bigger picture fear that impacts a lot of people. And so you can see why panic disorder and agoraphobia can often go together, but they can also be distinct and they don't have to be paired all the time. Exactly. And I think, you know, Dr. Fran and I, we were chatting about this earlier and kind of talking about like, what do we think is going on with Anna, right? We see that she does meet a lot of the criteria for agoraphobia. However, we don't have all the information about if she meets those main like kind of buckets for it to fall into about where she experiences her fear and anxiety. And we do see that she's having panic attacks. And from what we can, you know, surmise from watching them, it seems like they might fit criteria for panic attack. And so we kind of, and we'll talk as we continue a bit more about this, but we had like, you know, a a good discussion about like, well, what is really going on here? Is it that she is trying to avoid panic attacks and the panic attacks come on when she leaves the house? And so that's why she avoids leaving the house and she's worried about, you know, having a panic attack, is afraid of having a panic attack, afraid of embarrassing herself when she leaves the house. Um, Is there something else that's causing the fear related to her leaving the house, right? Maybe it's not necessarily... Or maybe there's something specific that she's afraid of when she leaves the house. And so we'll talk a little bit more about that and how it relates to the um, potential traumatic experiences that she's had. But, you know, it can be very difficult to tease some of these aspects apart. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we'll complicate things even more in a moment by bringing in another (laughs) diagnosis that could be at play here. Um, And so I think we're not ready to give her a diagnosis, you know, full bingo for agoraphobia or panic disorder at this point. So let's keep moving along in the story arc and figure out like what additional information could we learn to help us paint a better diagnostic picture of Dr. Fox. Yes. And so the main climactic action of this movie is really, you know, so we talked about how Anna has had interactions with Ethan and Jane Russell, her new neighbors. Um, We've heard her describe her experiences with agoraphobia and panic attacks. We've gone through that. And then really what happens next is that she's at home watching the neighbors as one does. And she as sees one does. Dr. <laughs> Sam Jane likes Russ- to watch her neighbors, apparently. <laughs> I just meant like as she does is how I should have said it, because we know that's like what she does entertain herself. Um, but really, in the midst of this, she sees Jane Russell, who she believes to be Jane Russell, her new neighbor, murdered. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> and then, of course, you know, the movie really takes a turn into her trying to to get help, right? She just thinks that this woman, who she has newly befriended, has been murdered. We talked about how she tries to leave the house, has another panic attack. When she comes to, she's in her home, and the police are there, the detectives, and um, Mr. Russell is there as well. And, you know, unfortunately, I do think this is a 
common archetype that we see in movies and shows and books, but it is like, here is this woman who has a known history of mental illness, and now we cannot believe anything that she's saying, or we have to cast doubt on her, even though she is concerned for the well-being of another. Yeah, absolutely. I think we definitely see people, you know, I think a term that's thrown around a lot is like gaslighting, right? Of like leading her to believe that her own thoughts and the things that she believes that she has seen and that what she knows to be true is not right. And everyone, including the detectives, including the rest of the family across the street, Ethan, who she has befriended and thinks she can trust because she's trying to protect him. All these people seem to be kind of going against her to be like, what you saw wasn't real. Like you're having hallucinations and you're like, quote, crazy. I talked to your doctor, Dr. Landy. Your doctor said that your meds can cause hallucinations. Exactly. Like that, the woman you saw that was murdered doesn't even exist. This is the real Jane Russell. But then she also just gets a sense like people are being kind of cagey and there is something suspicious going on. Um, but she does start to doubt herself. Like, did I meet this woman? What is really happening? Um, and, you know, when the detectives come to her, we also learn some additional upsetting news that unfortunately in the scene they kind of use to just paint more evidence as like something's wrong with you and we can't believe you but let's like listen to what we learn about what has happened to Anna and her family if my husband were here he would help he would believe me Dr. Fox your family is dead I don't know how you can live with yourself if you let something happen to a child I'm sorry, but your family is dead. Anna! I'm sorry, but your family is dead. So here's like kind of twist number one is that we learn that Anna's family, her husband and her daughter, who she has been seemingly talking to on the phone this whole movie, they actually died in a car accident about 10 months ago, right? That timeline is starting to make a little bit more sense. We've had like some flashbacks and some allusions to something happening, but we really get a picture here that, you know, they were driving down like a windy road in the middle of a snowstorm and Anna accidentally drives off the side of the road. And unfortunately, both her husband and her daughter die from the car accident. And this will be one part where we'll kind of talk about the book briefly, just because Dr. Fran and I both discussed earlier, just in the book, I think as is more customary sometimes with like, you know, reading the words versus watching a movie, they're able to provide more detail about this event. And so in the book, we learn a lot more about the relationship with her and her husband being strained and why that was strained. Um, they're going on this like last holiday event as a family to kind of bring some positivity to their daughter before they discuss like that they may be separating. Uh, and then related to that, when they get in the car accident, as it's described in the book, at least, there she is there alone in the winter wilderness for days um, as her husband and daughter pass away and she's without any assistance. And so, you know, we really get a better picture for this event. And in the movie, I thought they did this really nicely visually, is that as she's hearing this, she starts to kind of re-see or re-experience the scene like there in her living room um, and really kind of brings us to it. But we do find that this was a very, you know, traumatic, sudden event where she lost her family. Yeah, absolutely. And I think in the book in particular, you get really that, I mean, it's very heartbreaking. Like, like not only is there this car accident 
that, you know, kills her husband and her daughter. But in the book, it gives a lot of detail about like, they weren't dead on impact. Like she basically spends a few days trying to keep them alive, trying to like, they're both passed out and she's trying to tend to their wounds, but she's also in, you know, wounded. And it takes several days in a snowstorm for, you know, state troopers to like come out and like rescue them. And by that point it's too late. She can't save her family. Uh, And so I think there's another aspect of that. That's not completely translated into the movie of that part of her fear of the outdoors seems to be related to her experience of being stuck in the wilderness where she sees the night sky, she sees all the stars Mm -hmm. and that that has come to be this very, you know, important trauma reminder for her of like reminding her of these three days that she spent trying to like save her family. And relatedly, we see um, kind of in the movie, and we also read more about this in the book, is that she's repeatedly trying to make phone calls and she's repeatedly trying to get help. And so we talked about a big sense of this as well when we talk about agoraphobia and panic um, can be that this fear of not getting help when it's needed, right? And so she went through an actual event where there was she was in dire need of assistance that she could not receive. And so I wonder if that could be related as well. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. So I think thinking about all this, like learning about this really traumatic, horrible event that Anna has been through, I think adds another kind of question on top of that of how much of this might be post-traumatic stress disorder and how much are those things overlapping or distinct. I think that's a great question, Dr. Fran. And I know that we have talked about post-traumatic stress disorder or, or PTSD and PTSD-like symptoms in other sessions. So we have chatted about this before um, in Goodwill Hunting, Never Have I Ever, or even Perks of Being a Wallflower in some of our other sessions. So if you want to get an even more in-depth or even more information related to PTSD, go ahead and give those a listen as well. But in this particular instance, Dr. Fran, as you all know, Freudian Scripters is our resident expert on trauma and PTSD. So what would you say specific for Anna we see are some of those symptoms and some of those things that are in line with the diagnosis of PTSD? Yeah, great question. Mm-hmm. These are criteria I can rattle off the top of my head. I don't need to, <laughs> I don't need notes for these, but if I was doing like a very quick, like fire diagnosis bingo with her, I would say we've got re-experiencing. So that's the very first one. We see her have flashbacks to the car accident. We see a few other allusions to this. Um, one could even make the argument that her conversations with Ed and with her daughter that would seem to be over the phone could be a type of flashback or re-experiencing. So I would say like that's one of the big ones and she definitely seems to meet that in my eyes at least. We've also got avoidance of situations that remind her of the traumatic events. So if we're thinking of like being outside or even acknowledging that her family is dead as being reminders of what happened, she's absolutely avoiding having to think about or deal with what happened um, and the trauma that she's been through. Then our third bucket for PTSD is changes in cognitions or thoughts um, or mood. So we do see that she seems to have developed depressive type symptoms since this event Mm -hmm. happened. We also see that she has a lot of guilt and shame around not being able to save or protect her family and not having done better. Um, And so that can be really common after a traumatic event. And then finally, we've got what we call um, like alterations in arousal. So this can be what we call like hypervigilance. So individuals who are really on guard or on edge, um, they might feel like they might be in danger at any point. We do kind of see this a little bit like she is oftentimes, and I think this is also like a Hollywood, you know, spin on it of how they oftentimes it's like she's very jumpy. Um, she hears a noise, she's jumpy, she wakes up often, she's, you know, kind of in and out of this state. So I would argue that she meets 
a lot of the criteria for PTSD if I was going to do it based off what we see in the movie. Yes. And, you know, I think that's one of the things that made it so tricky for us, right? We're talking about this avoidance piece, right? Is she avoiding leaving the house related to fears of agoraphobia? Is she avoiding leaving the house because she's trying to avoid panic attacks? Is she avoiding leaving the house because it is a trauma reminder, right? And it might not be only one or none of these or all of these, you know, there's, it can, these can occur in a combination. Um, I think another big piece you talked about is, you know, she avoids even mentioning or addressing that her her family members are dead, right? Because that's one of the big reminders. And she does have what might be seen as um, re-experiencing or hallucinating relating to, like, you know, talking to her family and things like that. What do you make of those types of symptoms for Anna? It's tricky because what the detectives and what her psychiatrists seem to think are going on is that she's having hallucinations yeah. because of the medications that she is on. Sometimes mm-hmm. medications can have side effects of hallucinations. Also, she's using alcohol a lot, and that combined mm-hmm. with the medications could produce hallucinations. Um, but I think if we were ignoring the medications and the substance use, we also could conceptualize some of what she's experiencing as related to the PTSD, almost like a flashback or like a dissociative episode. Um, in the book, they give a little bit more context that she has developed this as a way of trying to cope of, you know, talking to, and her psychiatrist is aware in the book that she does this, that she talks to her husband and her daughter as a way to try to feel connected to them. And, you know, they do talk in the book about how she tries not to overly rely on that or be overly dependent because she knows it could kind of move towards being unhelpful in a way. And I think that the unhelpful piece is what's more portrayed in the movie of more of a denial of what actually happened and an inability to accept it and be able to move forward with her life. That makes a lot of sense. I'm also curious, you know, in terms of the avoidance, like I kind of briefly mentioned, you know, with that piece of avoiding things because they might remind her of her trauma or related to the agoraphobic type symptoms, what do you think or how could we kind of tease apart those two? Yeah, this is another really tricky one. And I think you kind of hit the nail on the head, like really thinking about how much of it is related to the trauma and how much of it is separate. Um, I think something that often comes up with the population of like veterans, for example, people have been in combat, they oftentimes will develop what seems like agoraphobia. And again, you can have PTSD and agoraphobia, but a lot of it could be related to, I don't feel safe outside of the home because, you know, of similar things to what Anna experienced, right? She had this really horrific traumatic event happen to her. And now she's fearful that if she leaves the house, one, it'll remind her of what happened Two, she won't be able to escape or get help. You know, three, something terrible is going to happen to her or the people she loves and cares about. So it's really tricky of really like staying is the fear that she has about going outside, like not related at all to the trauma. Um, and I think we just don't know that, but I would argue there definitely seems to be a trauma component there. I agree. And we saw earlier when we were discussing agoraphobia that oftentimes it, there can be onset related to a trauma or a stressful event. So, you know, I think that these are all three really important pieces when we're talking about Anna's character, right? The agoraphobia, the panic attacks, and PTSD and the trauma that she has experienced. Um, and as we mentioned, unfortunately, in the movie, the detectives, the neighbors, people around her are really using this to be kind of like a reason for why she can't be trusted because she's had this horrible event happen to her and it has kind of changed the way that she's able to like interact and behave and think about things. And so now no one really believes her when she thinks that Jane Russell has been murdered we see that this starts to take its toll on Anna and she talks about this with her psychiatrist as well. Let's listen to her talk to the psychiatrist, like kind of once she's been feeling like people like Dr. Fran mentioned have been gaslighting her um, and she's starting to struggle with everything happening. I understand if you want to recommend supervision. I'm listening. 
I've been slipping, slipping on my meds, drinking, getting into a really dark frame of mind, and I'm not sharing that with you. That's a hard thing to admit. Well, it feels good to say. And to hear. I don't think that the yellow man is good for me. <laughs> not if you're hallucinating, no. <laughs> no, and there's a mania, too. I just really needed to be at the center of something. I needed a wake-up call. You got very lucky with that detective. You realized how this could have gone differently. I just want to turn it around. I had no idea about David. Well, that was a mess. Is he here? No, no. He's going to come back this afternoon and pick up the last of his stuff. Which leaves you here alone. You don't think it's paranoid if I want to change the locks, do you? You don't. There's going to have to be somebody here. And then you and I are going to go back to three sessions a week. Okay. So I do appreciate in this scene that at least we're seeing that Anna is realizing that it's important and it might be helpful for her to share more openly with her psychiatrist about the difficulty she's been having. And part of it is that now she has been convinced that she is making up everything and that she's hallucinated yes. this entire narrative. And so part of her motivation is unfortunately like misled because she hasn't been hallucinating the murder and all these other things, but she doesn't know that yet. <laughs> um, but I do appreciate that she's being more open with the psychiatrist because hopefully that means he can help her right like he suggests upping the amount of times that they see each other mm -hmm. so he they talk about adding more supervision they talk about replacing the tenant with someone else so that she has someone that she can go to if she needs help or different things like that one of the things that really stood out to me as well is when anna says that she's in a dark frame of mind i feel like any mental health provider should follow up with what do you mean by that and get some type of more you know get some type of information and more details um, because she like you mentioned Dr. Fran she finally is opening up she's talking about how she's slipping she admits to the alcohol use but she also says like I'm really struggling and I'm in a dark place um to the psychiatrist's credit, he does praise her. He says, you know, that this is like a difficult thing to admit. And he kind of validates her for sharing those feelings. But then he doesn't really do anything with them, I think, which is a, a big problem in this instance. Especially because he's already mentioned that he knows she has a maybe even a suicide attempt history um, that yes. she maybe has attempted in the past. So that combined with like all this distress that she's dealing with, all this, all these stressors, and now her finally being open to discussing this. I totally agree, Dr. Sam. I think there's a lot of questions that he should have asked to try to get a better sense mm -hmm. of what's going on. Is she maybe at risk? Um, of course, hindsight is hindsight is twenty twenty, and we know that she then goes forward with starting to prepare to actually end her life. Exactly. Very unfortunate situation. You know, pretty soon in the movie after this appointment, which I also don't really like the portrayal of that, right? Finally, someone who opens up and shares and is talking to a provider and then very shortly after goes and makes these preparations. But that's what we see happens with Anna. We see her collect some medications and she starts to make preparations to take her own life um, and including making a video. Uh, and Dr. Fran and I talked about, we don't really um, feel like this is the most sensitive portrayal of someone who is struggling with suicidal thoughts and suicidal ideation. Um, we do want to chat about it just briefly. So we'll listen just to a piece of Anna kind of describing uh, her intentions here uh, and chat a little bit about kind of what she's going through and then what happens following up with that in the movie. I just wish I could be forgiven. I really wish I could just be forgiven. I want to go back. I want to do it over. 
I want to do it different. And I can't. And I can't. I think this makes a lot of sense thinking about some of the themes that she's mentioning. Like we talked about before with, with PTSD, we do see some of that guilt. She's like saying, I wish I could be forgiven, um, wanting this sense of just like having this be over. I think we can, we can empathize and understand why Anna feels like this might be her only option. And obviously we would hope that through her work, work with her psychiatrist or other supports that she can come up with another way to move forward. Exactly. That would be the hope is that she um, would have had the opportunity to share these thoughts and feelings with the psychiatrist and had been able to take another path to move forward. I think also what we really see with Anna here is that she just really doubts her own sense of reality at this point. She thinks that everything she has been experiencing is false, right? She doesn't think there was a Jane and that Jane wasn't murdered. And she's starting to kind of have that build up with the guilt and the feelings of loss associated with her family. Um, So she really is in a dark place like she had mentioned. And then we we see her kind of um, get a little bit of like hope, right? So she starts going through some pictures and she sees a picture of her cat Punch, um, which I think is a very cute cat name, um, which she took. And she sees that in that picture, she can see the reflection of the woman who she believes is Jane Russell. And we kind of see like literally in the movie, like her face and her like affect, she kind of brightens up and she seems relieved. Like, no, wait, this is real. Like something really is going on here, um, which makes her you know, very fortunately decide not to try to take her own life. Um, Dr. Fran and I really want to highlight again that, you know, coping skills, getting support and treatment are beneficial for most people that experience panic attacks, agoraphobia, and thoughts of suicide. So while this is portrayed as kind of her, as Anna feeling like this might be her only opportunity in this moment in the movie, we really want to highlight that treatment and these types of supports can be helpful for people that have these experiences. Absolutely. I think, unfortunately, Dr. Sam and I like talked about that this wasn't portrayed in the most sensitive way um, in terms of yeah, it feeling like almost like an afterthought and not really portrayed in a very like nuanced or, you know, especially in like how it not gets cured, but how it gets better. It like in the movie, it almost seems like, oh, like her story's believed and like, we'll get to, you know, how her agoraphobia is like magically cured, that that's just not like Mm -hmm. necessarily accurate. Um, Mm -hmm. I will say the fact that she is eventually believed or that like she even for self-validation of like i didn't believe that my own reality was real and now i do believe that i do think that's very powerful and almost mirrors maybe like what we would use in therapy of like validation of like your experience makes sense your experience is valid it is real um and unfortunately like she hasn't gotten that until this point in the movie which is i think part of what's contributing to her feeling like she has no other option That's totally right, Dr. Fran. And I think also like along those lines, you know, you mentioned that her agoraphobia and even just the, you know, the negative thoughts that she's experiencing, they're all kind of just cured. They all kind of go away when she defeats Ethan. And we'll chat about that as we go. But I think in that lens and kind of along that vine, maybe talking about like what treatment has looked like for Anna a bit and what that could potentially look like um, that would be more beneficial for her or someone like her. Yeah, I would like to give the psychiatrist more credit and just say like, oh, I'm sure they're doing a lot of really helpful evidence-based practice in the scenes that we are not (laughs) seeing in the movie. But from what Mm. we see, it's very much focused on medication management, which can be very helpful, but in combination with like evidence-based 
therapy or evidence-based counseling. Um, and we just don't see a lot of that counseling piece. Uh, and I think that's very unfortunate. I think that the movie missed an opportunity to bring in like what that might look like and how that can in adjunct with maybe like a big life changing event could kind of actually help someone long term. Very true. We know medication can be helpful and beneficial, and we know that it can be most beneficial in conjunction with evidence-based treatment. Um, so some of the things that we do hear about other than the medicine related to her treatment, and she mentions this to Jane, and we actually see it when she goes to try to save Jane, is she pulls out an umbrella as kind of like a tool to help her go outside. Um, so I don't know about you listeners and you, Dr. Fran, but when I was watching this, I was kind of curious, you know, like I was like, okay, um, is this something that could be realistic? Is this something that people use? And actually, it seems silly, but it's not an inaccurate depiction. So oftentimes in treatment related to agoraphobia, um, people can use and start off by using what we call safety items. So whether that's like another person or something that can help the individual feel safe when they're leaving the safe space and kind of venturing out initially, right? The goal isn't to always have to rely or use the safety item, but it can be used in initial stages of treatment. Like we see Anna as like she's just in the very early stages of learning to kind of like venture outside of her house without experiencing panic and distress. Yeah, I agree with that. That's kind of how I was thinking about it as well as like a safety net <laughs> almost or a safety yeah. umbrella, right? Of if she's able to go outside while using the umbrella, that's better than not being able to go outside at all, right? But mm -hmm. the goal would be to eventually have her go outside without the umbrella. Um, and actually, I would say some people who are very hardcore, like behavioralists or really hardcore people who do exposure yes. and response prevention, which we'll talk about as kind of like the gold standard treatment for these type of diagnoses, they might say like, no umbrella, we're just going to flood yes. you with these feared experiences and you have to just go outside and deal with it because we see results much more quickly that way. Yes, there are definitely two schools of thought, I think. There are some people who don't want to rely on like using coping or anything like that. You're kind of experiencing the anxiety and and those fears and realizing that they are not uh, as harmful as you initially believed. And then there are other schools of thoughts that might use an item like this. So, you know, kind of not inaccurate, but also maybe not accurate, depending on how you look at that. I do want to note that one of the pieces I want to highlight as, you know, potentially accurate and might be really useful to someone is the fact that, you know, mental health providers can and do go to the homes of individuals to help treat things like agoraphobia, right? Because if you're a person who might be experiencing things like agoraphobia or agoraphobic-like symptoms, you might think that, you know, going to get help is even insurmountable or also adds to that fear. Uh, and so knowing that help can come to you, I think is really important. And that is accurate. There are various types of mental health providers that do go into the homes of families, children, teens, and adults to help with various uh, concerns. Yeah, absolutely. And so just giving a little bit more context to the type of treatment that could be provided, I alluded to it already of exposure and response prevention. Uh, so again, this is one of our gold standard treatments. You might hear us talk about it again. Um, we'll give a little bit of information on what it is and kind of how it would look like in the context of agoraphobia or panic disorder. So we think of ERP for short um, as being comprised of two different components. One is exposing the individual to whatever that anxiety producing situation situation is. And then two, this is the really important component, is preventing the typical avoidance response. So you can imagine if someone's typical response when they go outside, for example, is to run back inside, they're never going to really get to the end of like to the other side of what the anxiety does. We do typically see it almost look like a hill or a mountain of that anxiety really increases. And then 
kind of should decrease eventually over time. And by preventing that avoidance behavior, we're able to, you know, get people to get on the other end of that anxiety. This is really important when we think about avoidance, because as we know, the more you avoid, you're actually never going to get to the other side of that hill that Dr. Fran just described. Actually, the anxiety that you experience will continue to build. So with every avoidance, with every time that you're kind of staying away from that feared situation, it actually increases or exacerbates the anxiety. So that's why it's really important to kind of go through it and experience it in that way. And the way that people really work on this is that the individual will work with their therapist to really identify what the main thing it is that is feared or creating that anxiety response or outcome. And then they come up with a plan of very gradually being exposed to things um, related to that until they kind of get to the main thing that they're afraid of. So to put that in better context, for example, um, this can be if people are afraid of going into crowded spaces or leaving the house. So they would slowly work up towards, you know, kind of getting to the door, going down the first step, going to the sidewalk and you go little by little until doing each piece, the anxiety related to, you know, opening the door in Anna's instance, right? That's something that already causes her great anxiety. So, you know, like, let's say if she's at that step, she would kind of repeat that opening the door until that anxiety is manageable. And then she moves on to the next step, maybe taking a step outside. And you continue to kind of work towards that hierarchy or work towards those exposures while your anxiety and fear um, are more manageable. Yeah, and I alluded to this earlier, but there are kind of two different schools of thought on this. So what Dr. Sam described is one way of doing ERP where you're working off kind of this hierarchy, this fear hierarchy, or Mm -hmm. sometimes with kids and adolescents, we'll call it like a fear ladder of you're kind of working your Mm -hmm. way up to the top. I think on the other side, you have an alternative, which may work for some people, not as well for others, is more like flooding. So you just jump, if you can, to as high on the ladder as you possibly can go, and you try to manage that situation without avoidance or without escape. And then that can produce results much more quickly, right? Because you're jumping from like ladder rung number one to like seven. And so you're able to then hit everything below it pretty quickly. However, I think a lot of people when they hear of like just hitting your like biggest, scariest item right up front may not be realistic. So I think that's why there's kind of these two different approaches to exposure and response prevention with the goal for both being the same of reducing that avoidance and that like safety behavior. Yes, and I think that largely for ERP, most techniques do use the graduated approach. Um, I think that there's also like really this differing of those like safety behaviors, right? Are we going to kind of go into the, you know, into the ladder, into the hierarchy, whatever the case may be, without those or with those? I think that there's like kind of another split there. Um, And, you know, really the overall goal is being able to recognize the fear that drives this anxiety, do these exposures in a safe and more controlled manner so that they realize like, you know, what if... For example, if you're doing the exposures to panic attack-like symptoms, right, you would kind of gradually learn that, yes, while the panic attack is scary, it's maybe not as harmful as when as you initially believed. And so you're doing it in this controlled and safe manner, and then that gradually neutralizes or lessens the fear and the anxiety so that they're able to kind of continue down that path and hopefully, you know, leave their house, go on the, the bus, whatever the case may be. And I like what you mentioned there, Dr. Sam, of potentially even exposure to panic-like symptoms, because that's oftentimes very distressing, very scary for people. And something that I think has been helpful for a lot of people I've worked with, or, you know, I think in general is shared often is that panic attacks, while they feel very intense and they feel very dangerous and like something is very wrong, they actually do not cause physical harm. Um, Obviously, if someone like faints and hits their head, that's maybe a different story, but that panic attacks in themselves are not life-threatening, even though they absolutely feel that way in the moment. And sometimes that 
knowledge can help people realize like, okay, I can sit through this and it's really painful and I hate it and I'm uncomfortable and I know I'm not going to actually die or that really significant physical harm is not going to come to me. And that knowledge helps me sit with it so I can get to the other side and realize like I can handle these situations um, confidently without having to worry about these things coming up. And then next time I experience that symptom, I know it will be unpleasant and I know I can do it. And then, you know, that kind of time in which it takes for you to feel better, to feel less threatened decreases. That's really the goal, you know, and so you can do it with certain situations. You can do it with thoughts. You can just kind of expose yourself to certain thoughts that cause distress. You can do it related to panic like symptom, panic attack like symptoms. So you can really use this for all of those factors. In this case, we believe, you know, and as we mentioned, this is the gold standard for this type of therapy. We know it's effective. We know it helps people. We do believe that this would be the type of therapy that we would like Anna to receive and would help her to actually be able to better manage her panic attack symptoms, better manage her agoraphobia in conjunction. I think Dr. Fran and I would also like to see her receiving um, evidence-based treatment like trauma-focused CBT related to the trauma of losing her family as well. So we do not believe that, you know, as we see in the movie, after she has basically another traumatic event where her neighbor, Ethan, uh, we discover that he's actually the murderer and he killed his biological mother. That's who she thought Jane Russell was. And she fights for her life and defeats Ethan, you know, so this other trauma occurs and then that's what cures her agoraphobia. We would much rather see it have like these forms of CBT and more proper treatment. That would probably be best. Yeah. I guess one could make the argument that part of the interaction with Ethan on the roof when they're outside is flooding flooding in a way (laughs) of that. Like here's a woman who's like barely been able to even walk outside. And now because her life is in danger, she runs willingly onto her like terrace outside and it's this big open space and you know because she's basically distracted because she's trying not to get murdered by this teenage neighbor (laughs) she ends up fighting with ethan on the roof and after she has kind of like thrown him down the like sunroof and he is gone and she's safe she's kind of just laying there in the rain and looking up at the sky and i think that's kind of supposed to be where this like quote cure comes from is that like she's done it she's made it outside she's actually saved her life and actually being outside in this situation was safer than being in her home which kind of like puts a twist on how she's been feeling the whole time so if i'm trying to like pull something out of it i guess you could say (laughs) it was like an inadvertent exposure exercise I do see it as flooding. You're right. She had to flee her home for her safety. Um, but also, like, again, this is something very scary that's happening to her outside. She's, like, physically assaulted outside sure. again, right? So I, I agree. I, I like your take on it. I think that's definitely what they were going for with the movie, right, and the book, is that she overcame this obstacle, and she did it outside, and she saved her life. And, oh, now, look, I can do it. And you could also think on the flip side, like, oh, no, this is another scary thing that has happened to me. So, um, you know, luckily for Anna, we do see that, you know, she survives the attack from Ethan, and we see that after she leaves the hospital, she's able to leave her house. In fact, we see that she's moving out of her home. We also see in, you know, Hollywood magic type way that she gets some closure by saying goodbye to her family and kind of, you know, very confidently walks out of the house. <laughs> and that's how the this movie ends for her. Um, so we're glad that Anna's okay. We're glad that she has been able to resolve some of her difficulties and concerns. Um, and we would like to think that also treatment related to trauma and agoraphobia assisted with that success as well. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Well, even though we didn't have a ton of therapy, we always are able to find something that movies and TV shows did not do appropriately in terms of portraying mental health therapists or psychiatrists in this case. So without further ado, we'll bring back our segment, PH Don'ts. 
This is not a safe place. Sorry, are you, you going to like keep touching me like that? That guy is a total loon. But I cannot talk about my clients. I cannot talk about my clients. Oh, that's it. Great, great job, everybody. Thank you. Don't harshly criticize your patients about perceived lack of progress. Don't work with someone to treat symptoms that may be outside of your area of expertise. Don't only rely on medication as treatment when evidence-based therapies may also be beneficial. Don't continue asking your patient irrelevant questions when they ask you to stop or explain yourself. And please don't ignore signs of distress in someone who might need more help and support. All right, Dr. Fran. That brings us to the end of our session for The Woman in the Window. I know that you've been dropping little clues here and there, but what did you really think of this movie? (laughs) I know there's a bias because I had just read the book. I thought the book was pretty good for a, like, psychological thriller of this nature. Um, But I really think if I hadn't read the book, I still would think this movie was not very good. Um, I think (laughs) even though it had a great cast, I thought Amy Adams actually was pretty good in her role. I just felt like the themes that were covered, it just basically tried to force everything into a very short amount of time, and it didn't really dive deeply into anything. It was almost like three different stories. You've got, like, Anna's own mental health, then you've got what happened to her family, and then you've got this murder, and none of them really get enough attention. And so it just feels very Mm -hmm. surface level. So I – it was fine. I don't think I would recommend it to people. I'm sorry if you already watched it. What about you, Dr. Sam? I have to agree with a lot of that. I felt that the movie overall, like, had a very slow buildup and then, like, rushed everything at the end. Like, when you find out about, like, Ethan and all of that, it just was like, oh, here, let me just, like, share all this information with you. And I feel like they, like, added unnecessary mental health concerns, like, related to the suicide and things like that that were different from the book. I agree. I thought that the book was overall better. And so I kind of came in, like, having better hopes for the movie um and i do think that they try to fit too much in too quickly just kind of rushed i didn't think it was done that well i agree that i think like the acting performances for the most part like you know amy adams like she did a pretty good job i feel like that the characters overall were underdeveloped though so you know i agree i was i was not a fan of the movie no sad yeah i i I think we all were like kind of looking forward to it after the book and all that and you know netflix but it did not deliver and i do feel like we got i got a little bit of a hint when i was getting ready to go watch it and i couldn't find it on netflix at first right like when netflix releases new movies they like hype them up they have them all over they're on trending and i'm like looking through the trending i'm like where is this movie i know it just came out and i had to like Go search for it. So I'm like, this is not a good sign that Netflix isn't even promoting their own movie. I know. I do think a lot of people have been watching it because they had high hopes, but I, I feel like the general sense is not um, a positive one. And and kind of related to that, if we're thinking about just like the psychological constructs that we're talking about, what would you give it for your DSM-5 diagnosing shows and movies? <laughs> you all should see Dr. Fran's face. I think that would give you a <laughs> Like a two? I don't know if we've given anything a one, but I would be like, I mean, I guess it's probably not a one. I would say a two. Um, It didn't do anything egregiously wrong in terms of the, like, psychiatry portrayal. He didn't sleep with her, so that's a positive, I guess. That's sad. (laughs) That's the positive. So I'll give it a two. It just didn't do a lot for portraying any of the diagnoses we talked about in a, like, super accurate way. 
I think we've been on a roll with agreement because I'm also going to give it a two. I think, though, you know, I would say that the one major flaw with the psychiatrist is that he did not assess for, like, safety concerns and actually, you know, that she was in a very vulnerable place and made that known and was left um, to be unsupported in that. So I, I do dock it for that. I think related to the agoraphobia, there were some um, accurate portrayals related to that, like her panic attack-like symptoms weren't um, inaccurate in the way that they were shown. I also think that the fact that she like did have that fear and the avoidance piece, we did see her trying to cope uh, with substance use. You know, some of these things are what we might see, so I will you know give it credit for that, and that's where the two is coming from. I also think that you know this is a common archetype in stories, but even though they use the negative storyline of like, oh, can't believe this person because they're, you know, not mentally stable or, you know, they're not to be believed because they have mental health concerns. Obviously, that is a horrible, um, like, portrayal to do. But in the end, right, it was kind of like, oh, but look, it's redeeming because she was telling the truth and she wasn't hallucinating. <laughs> but I think that's often the storyline, right, is they make you, they make these characters where you're not sure whether or not you can believe them because they are not sure whether or not they can believe themselves. Um, so I also don't really like that, like, continued portrayal. I know that they do it for, like, suspense. But, yeah, I'm going to go with it, too. I, I do also find it very unfortunate that the first, like, psychologist protagonist that we portray is someone portrayed in such a negative light unfortunately and mm. of course psychologists also have mental health concerns and like yes. psychologists also have agoraphobia panic disorder ptsd like it's not like psychologists are immune to those i think it's just unfortunate that this is one of our only times that we've been able to portray a psychologist as a main character and of course she's wrapped up in this very like convoluted you know having her own mental health issues, but also not being believed. And, you know, mm -hmm. I like, was kind of like, what's the point of her being a psychologist in the movie? That's true. We didn't even chat about that. We mentioned in the beginning that we were excited to be covering a psychologist character. I think they touch a little bit more on that in the book. But in the movie, it kind of was like, okay, the only point they're making with her being a psychologist is that, well, she knows a little bit about psychology. So she's like mad at her psychiatrist, which is like a, you know, unfortunate portrayal. I will say you reminded me that one of the points I thought was cool about having a psychologist protagonist is that even someone who does have an understanding of how the mind and body work and about psychopathology, you know, anyone can have difficulties with anxiety, right? Like no one is immune to mental health uh, difficulties or concerns. Um, so I thought that that was an interesting thing to show, but maybe in the future we'll be able to have other movies where we have psychologists as protagonists and be able to dive a little bit more deeply into that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, unfortunately, this was not the best movie that we have covered, but at least gave mm -hmm. us an opportunity to cover some interesting new themes and diagnoses. Very true. And so that is a wrap on The Woman in the Window. You know, just like Anna, we're going to run out of this house. Um, but please <laughs> check our social media for our, mo our monthly Freudian Scripters spotlight and don't forget to leave reviews to get free stickers. We still do have some and it's kind of like a fun thing that we're going to continue. So if you leave a review, don't forget to just shoot us a screenshot on social media or email and get your sticker. Don't forget to check out our website for resources and a glossary of new terms that we covered today. Also, let us know your thoughts on the movie. Have you read the yeah. book? Did you 
have as strong of opinions about the movie that Dr. Sam and I did. Also, what are your thoughts on other books to movie adaptations? I know we previously talked about some other ones on the show and maybe are going to plan to cover some in the future. And also let us know what questions you might have about psychology, about what we covered today, and any movies or TV shows that you would like to see us bring up on the couch next. And please join us for next session. As we chatted about in our special birthday anniversary uh, session, we are doing cool new mini sessions. And so the first of which will be next time. And it will be a special pride mini session to wrap up the month of June. So definitely check that out. As always, please subscribe, rate, and review. Time's up. See you next session. We'd like to thank our producer, Brandon, creative director, Eric, and webmaster, Don. We do also generally see that people who develop a gorva, who develop a go, I cannot say this word. We do also... This is going on the end. <laughs> All of your tries of saving a Agoraphobic. <laughs> uh, um, we do also see that people with Agoraphobic... <laughs> Agoraphobic. Oh, my God. I said it. Agoraphobia. I can say the word. All right. We did it. <laughs> <laughs>